welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Well, folks, as we turn our Bibles today to Acts chapter 1, uh, I believe today is going to mark the dawn of a new day at Port St. Lucie Bible Church. I, I don't say that lightly. It should be a very positive day. As I imagine we would all agree that we have already marginalized prayer too long. I will include myself in this indictment and uh, as I've heard very few Christians throughout my lifetime uh, who have professed that they have adequ adequately devoted themselves to prayer. In fact, I would say that number is none. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that they have adequately devoted themselves to prayer. And every Christian must learn to agree that prayer has to be uh, our top priority still it too commonly comes last in our chronology you know, far too regularly will allow secondary concerns in the church and in our lives to put the squeeze on prayer time we experience this both privately in our homes and corporately as a church body and the following very firm advisement from John, uh, excuse me, James, our Lord's brother. Uh, it's written at the beginning of James chapter 4. We read it together earlier and in verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So uh, we find in that text that our current problem is, is not merely a contemporary one. The early church also struggled. Our brothers and sisters in Christ in the first century suffered from this same weakness. And there are numerous reasons that, that we do not Pray to God and ask. Here, here are just a couple, four reasons. Sometimes we do not ask because we are ashamed of what our heart longs to ask for. Glitter and gold. And by the conviction of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we instinctively know uh, that our motive for prayer is not the Father's will, so we say to ourselves, you know, I, I better not pray for this. Other times we do not ask because we deem it a higher priority to scan the morning headlines, uh, events which are completely beyond our control. And by the time we finish our coffee and our breakfast, our phone, our phone vibrates and our, our day is already interrupted, so prayer time simply gets crowded out. While, we'll, while we panic, we run to the door, we 
we throw up a proverbial, quote-unquote, uh, Hail Mary prayer, uh, Lord, please uh, help the rest of my day not to be as, uh, as hectic as it is at this time. But we rarely, truly stop to invite our Lord Jesus to accomplish his will in our day. Sometimes we do not ask for the Lord to accomplish his will because we know that doing so is going to necessitate our personal involvement, which of course would remove our time away from other things, either relaxation or recreation that we have deemed as higher priorities in our lives. And furthermore, we do not ask because well, we, we don't believe that God is really going to do much of anything anyhow. And, and, and this is most often true. The typical Christian experience in America is that God doesn't really do a whole lot because we have not ourselves asked with sincerity nor actively asked according to his will. Thus God is not going to do a whole lot of anything amongst partially committed, fair-weathered Christians who do not sincerely pray. Therefore, God not working it becomes our typical experience. And we get used to it. We get used to not God not working or are not able to see him visibly working. So we mumble to ourselves, well, you know, why bother to take the time to pray because I don't really see much of anything happen anyhow. To all such contentions, our Lord reacts in John chapter 14 and verse 16 when saying, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Please do not miss that so that clause attached to Jesus' promise, he says, whatever you ask in my name is to be uttered with this divine inclination, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. With that settled, Christ continues by telling them uh, and us, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and then I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, the Holy Spirit, that he may be with you forever. So it's perpetual. From a previous lesson, we've already discerned that this helper, this Holy Spirit, is assured to arrive not many days from now, but will remain with us forever. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. 
So I believe it is time that we start asking. And we ask with the following in mind, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Consequently, I had Mary, our treasurer this week, add to the bottom of your prayer card, which is also attached to the bottom of your bulletin, uh, two reminders from James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, which are, you do not have because you do not ask, and because you ask amiss or with wrong motives. With these principles clearly uh, revealed to Christ's church from the very beginning of Christ's church, I invite you to look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 12. I've titled the message today, uh, Three Enduring Principles of Corporate Prayer. Three Enduring Principles of Corporate Prayer. When you put that title on a message, uh, and it's on the website. Uh, that is one title that you expect people to, to, well, pass right by and not look at at all. They want something a little more exciting than three enduring principles of corporate prayer, right? This is to indicate corporate prayer, indicating how we are to pray when we are gathered together. And verse 12 begins immediately after Jesus had been taken up into heaven, where we are told, then they, referring to the disciples, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. I define what we observe in this passage today as enduring principles uh, because we can see that the attitude of these disciples, now apostles, uh, we see it as repeated by the entire church as time progresses. In fact, uh, shortly after Pentecost, uh, we read in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 that, that they, this time referring to early Christians, that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking bread, and to prayer. And if you review the epistles from the apostle Paul, which were written later after the book of Acts, uh, he repeatedly calls local churches to devote themselves corporately to prayer. That Greek phrase, continually devoted, it means to, to persevere devoutly, to, to be busily engaged in. And here, while it is presented in, the, in what is called the imperfect tense, 
There's a writer, a New Testament theologian, Eckerd Schnabel. Uh, he says, it is here intended to underscore the persistent and continuous nature of their prayers. The apostles in the early church surely embraced Jesus' pledge that the Father's will shall be achieved and it will be achieved while they are continually devoted to prayer. Now, before we search for ways, for clauses uh, to dismiss or cast doubt on the promised effects of persistent and continuous corporate prayers, let me first ask this. How many times have you really tried it? How many Wednesdays have you honestly confessed to your sovereign creator that short of World War II or your own cardiac arrest, nothing is going to prevent me from gathering with my church to pray tonight? And how many times have you had the name of a person whom you have witnessed to over the previous week and told yourself, I will not be able to sleep. My soul shall not rest until my church has prayed with me for this person's eternal soul. Whether the name is Mary or Harry or Sally, I imagine most of us are drawn blanks. Compare this with the frequency with which we have said, Honey, do we have anything important scheduled tonight? And if not, and if you haven't already had a tiring day, do you feel like driving over to church? Why then do we marvel as to why God is doing so little to glorify himself through his son and through us? How many of us can sit here and claim, I am continually devoted to prayer? Not just that I, I do pray, or, or I have occasionally enjoyed prayer meetings, and not just that, that I remain devoted to preserving the idea that prayer is a pretty good idea. It's, it's a good exercise. I'm committed to that, that thought that prayer is a good exercise. And, and not just that you know, I acknowledge that corporate prayer is, is of a highest priority in God's word uh, and, and a good thing to do if I have placed nothing else in my schedule that will interfere. No, when have we rather confessed that I am devoted to gathering with the people of God, my local church for prayer, 
and prioritizing it far above all other items of temporal importance, which I will set aside. Well then, I, I guess the first enduring principle of, of corporate prayer uh, ought to be pretty instinctive. People gather together for prayer. It, it must be corporate to be corporate prayer. And, and since this scene in verse 13, uh, it's in the upper room, the upper room, uh, the church has historically gathered ever since together as one body specifically for the purpose of prayer. How do we know that everyone is gathered together? Well, because the text assures us that they are and, and that they're all praying with one mind. Folks, this, this wasn't a leadership meeting. Prayer, especially corporate prayer, isn't something you can delegate to your pastor. And say, I think he's got it covered. He, he gets a salary to handle these things. And I hope that he's got that covered. We cannot delegate our responsibility to pray to anyone else. So this, this wasn't just a leadership meeting of the apostles. Next Sunday we'll learn from the passage that there are ultimately you know, about 120 of them all in, all in one room. Probably not a whole lot different than the gathering that we have here in size and in, in combination we know that at least the 11 remaining disciples, along with probably a few other people, they had returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Verse 12 tells us the distance that was about a Sabbath day journey. That is about a kilometer, three-fifths of a mile. Um, so uh, as I show a, a photo here, I just want you to realize that uh, what the writer Luke is communicating is it wasn't very far. It wasn't very far. The Mount of Olives was just east of Jerusalem. You can see the Temple Mount in the background where that dome is. Um, it's across a narrow Kidron Valley. And uh, this, this picture shows a view of looking at the Temple Mount from uh, Mount Olivet in modern day. So Luke is telling us it, it wasn't very far. Don't get deceived into embracing the thought or idea. that It's a false notion that this passage implies that after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples were still attempting to keep the Sabbath. That idea gets passed around. Uh, first off, there is no limit prescribed in the Mosaic Law as to how far you are allowed to walk on a Saturday. That distance, that Sabbath day walk, that kilometer, it was entirely contrived by man, uh, and none of you follow it today. So don't think that's what we are supposed to follow. Secondly, this is not the extent of the distance that they walked on this day. Luke 24 and verse 50, the Gospel of Luke, states earlier on this occasion that Jesus had led them on that day as far out as Bethany, which is some distance beyond all of it. Probably to visit Mary and Martha and Lazarus, who 
one final time who they themselves lived in Bethany. After this, they returned to Olivet, where Jesus ascended. Um, and now, after Christ has ascended, the apostles are walking back to Jerusalem. So they definitely covered more than a Sabbath day journey on this day. They weren't attempting to keep a Sabbath uh, uh, in, after the resurrection. Furthermore, we don't even know this occurred on a Saturday. The reference to the Sabbath day's walk is merely to signify to Luke's readers who might not, been, might not have been familiar with the topography, people who'd never been to Jerusalem, that's why I put the photo up for us, Luke is simply indicating to his readers who remained unfamiliar with the terrain that after Jesus had left them, uh, they only needed to walk a short distance before they could get to the upper room. They all returned together to what is called the upper room, the definite article. Um, that is the same location where, most likely the same location where the Last Supper was shared. Uh, and it tells us that's where they were still staying. Served as their little Motel 6 in Jerusalem. And we are given the names of Jesus' 11 apostles minus Judas Iscariot. Uh, we'll discover what happened to him in verse 18 going forward. And in verse 14, along with them, along with the 11, uh, there were the women, the mother uh, of Jesus named Mary, and his, even his brothers are with now. So they were all together, most likely including at least some of the children. The reference to the women assuredly includes those such as Joanna and Mary Magdalene uh, who accompanied Jesus throughout the course of his journeys. Uh, Jesus' mother is there. Jesus' brothers apparently have become believers as well now. So this prayer gathering has become all-inclusive. Everyone's present. I'm told they referred to it. Steve, this is on as family night. <laughs> I just heard that somewhere. No, I made it up. If you're a visitor, that's when our prayer gathering gets together on Wednesdays. We call it family night. Uh, so a couple of things we can conclude here is that the early church purposefully gathered for corporate prayer, which is, is not the identical same thing to corporate worship. The purpose is different. Uh, there, there was a time they had devoted to prayer. And there is a time to devote to corporate prayer. And we cannot suggest that we accomplish this on Sunday morning. On Sundays we give special attention to worship and special attention to the public reading of scripture, uh, to exhortation and to teaching, to breaking bread on the first Sunday of each month. By comparison, corporate prayer serves as an occasion where people can express personal needs, where various people can pray and where prayer focus can intensify to urgent priorities of the local church and of the broader church, missions and 
other things that come up, other crises that can be addressed. As a church family, we, we have traditionally had a preference that this best occurs on Wednesday. Wednesday evening, at, at, at least, well, at least I prefer it over Sunday night. Um, I also don't like, pers- this is personally, I don't like going a full seven days without gathering together. It gets to be a long week without seeing you wonderful people. That's just being honest from the heart. I don't want to wait seven days to see everyone again. I am in no way suggesting that a church cannot carve out time and cultivate passionate corporate prayer on Sundays. Surely they can. We, we could surely stay here uh, an hour longer or we could come back after lunch to pray. Uh, the Puritans spent event, uh, virtually the whole day in church. Somehow, I don't think this would increase our attendance for prayer gatherings. <laughs> but the first enduring principle of corporate prayer instinctively requires people to gather. The second what I call enduring principle of corporate prayer is that we become a group that shares one mind. Verse 14 reveals <laughs> there's a diversity of men and women all gathered together praying, we are told, all with one mind. Later in chapter 2 and verse 46, we, we will read, day by day they continued with one mind. At the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, we are ter- told that the church had become of one mind. And in several places in his epistles, the Apostle Paul reminds local churches to always be of the same mind. Well, how in the world can you get? A group as diverse as this, not only in the passage, but in this church today. How can you, how can you get a diverse group of individuals to think with the same mind while praying? Folks, it's not as difficult as it first appears. The way this is achieved is by focusing the topics of corporate prayer on those things which we know from Scripture are unequivocally revealed as the will of God. At this church, we've been, we've been cultivating this mindset for a while now. Uh, after each sermon, I print in the midweek newsletter that goes out by email a summary statement from the previous Sunday's message concerning what the revealed will of God is. There's a summary statement every week. This is the will of God. Uh, Some examples are, His will is your sanctification. His will is that we are generous and willing to share. God's will is that we labor in evangelism. It's God's will that we be doers of the word and not only hearers. 
It is the will of God that we, we love one another in unity. And it is God's will that we pray with one mind. That's God's will. And verse 14's emphasis of, of a single-minded prayer assumes that these Christians knew what they should be praying for. Prayer for them was not ambiguous. And due to the clarity of God's word, we too know what we should pray for. And, and we know how to pray. And therefore, when our prayers are verbally uttered, when we're in a group, the heart of every person present in the room expresses Amen. That is characteristic of prayers that are in agreement. Prayers that are of one mind. Most of the items on your prayer card that you can look at, um, they're provided as samples. Just a few examples of prayers that are clearly God's will. They, they help to preserve a focus during corporate prayer. We can all pray in agreement for your boldness in the gospel, for the winning of souls, for your steadfast devotions with your family. We can pray in unison for your generosity, that you'd have a generous heart, that you would have wisdom in parenting, etc., 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 because they are all clearly revealed in Scripture to be the will of God. So we can pray for them. We also want to pray for your physical health. Often so, so, we, can, so we can know as a body how to minister to you in your time of need. How we can fill what is needed uh, in your life um, that's how we minister to you. And among such prayers, there will, there, will, there will likely never arise a division in our minds. And we can compare this. We can compare this to when somebody asks us all to pray for a broken finger that their otherwise healthy cousin out in Burbank uh, whom none of us have ever met and none of us expect there's going to be any problem, uh, three quarters of us are going to answer, what? what that, that, that's the priority of gathering together? Or when somebody asks, you know, pray I'll get a year-end bonus so I can add that hot tub to my swimming pool. The rest of us say, What? Scripture does not make such things priorities of corporate prayer. And we don't necessarily know God's will in many of these matters. Um, and we do not possess miraculous powers to heal distant cousins in distant lands. Scripture does not delegate to us that power. Rather, there are some types of prayer requests that actually distract us from corporate prayer and prevent us from praying with one 
mind. See, folks, this isn't that difficult. You, of course, have the liberty to make all your requests be made known to God in private prayer. A hot tub, a hot tub for Christmas might be among them. But some we don't have to hear. And in fact, some prayers, like the publican at the, the, publican at the temple, the tax collector at the temple, some even God doesn't want to hear. James earlier assured us there are types of prayers that dishonor God and there are ways in which we can pray amiss. But through praying together things which we all know that God wants to hear, uh, he draws our hearts together in unison and by this, Christians are able to pray with one mind. So first principle of corporate prayer, we, we pray by gathering together regularly. Um, second principle, we pray with one mind. And uh, a third enduring principle of corporate prayer is that we, we must remain continually devoted to it. That's verse 14. Thanks be to God, uh, in America, we no longer have to walk a kilometer or two or several kilometers like they do in some countries. Praise God, he's made it so that we don't have to walk in the rain, the wind, the heat, or the cold like so many Christians over the centuries have needed to do. We drive. Then afterwards, we, we battle with our umbrellas for a few steps to the door. It's tough. Therefore, gathering together for prayer can be in no way described as inconvenient to us, even if the weather is inclement outside. We must instead remain, or actually, we must instead become continually and steadfastly devoted to gathering for prayer. We do not have because we do not ask and because we quit too easily and too early. I'm going to apologize for calling off prayer a couple weeks ago due to a tropical storm that in the end didn't even hardly graze us. Now, we, we could have called off music practice and kids club and other things and given those teachers time to, to prepare that they won't be going in. But concerning prayer, I could have, have given it a little more time and, and allowed people to make up their own minds. And though it might appear that I was acting responsibly because, you know, the weather might have turned a little dangerous. I also must ask myself this. If prayer becoming dangerous is the qualifying criteria, how are we conditioning ourselves to respond once civil authorities tell us 
you are no longer allowed to gather. That question is going to begin to arise in chapter 5. If things getting dangerous are the reason. I'm not saying we should never uh, call off when things are obviously dangerous. But you get the point? We too easily give up. Secondly, Scripture expects that we'll become primarily and continually devoted to the purposes of prayer. And since Wednesdays are designated primarily as an evening to prioritize corporate prayer, I'm going to apologize again. I'm going to apologize for the evenings in the past when I have rambled on too long in giving a lesson. Perhaps because I felt what I had to say was more important than what we all together need to say to God. And, and, and I apologize for rambling on too long in a lesson rather than cultivating in us a single-mindedness and a steadfastness for lifting our requests to be made known to God. A suitable devotional lesson, it will set our minds on the things above. That is good. But my sometimes long-windedness should not dominate a time that has primarily been designated to the Lord our God in prayer. It's a responsibility of spiritual leadership. Uh, mine in particular, because I'm up here more often than the other elders to cultivate and nurture devotion to prayer. I realize such a change in mindset is not going to happen uh, overnight. It may come slow, folks. It, it must happen. It must happen. For our common shared pursuit of God's purposes, for the sake of our children, we have to make adjustments. You know, our children are, are going to learn to identify what we truly believe from Scripture through our actions. They'll discern what are our highest priorities in our week, in our, in our lives. And through watching and listening us, they're going to observe whether or not we remain continually devoted to prayer. And by our openness to God's word and by his grace, we can pray and ask God that our children will never have to say to us, Dad and Mom, you do not have because you do not ask. And you do not ask, uh, you do not receive because you're asking with wrong motives. A few closing remarks. Our prayer meetings this last summer they brought an unexpected and welcome adjustment to some of my thinking. More so than any previous year I can recall our young families brought their children in to pray. 
when kids club isn't going on our families continued to bring their children in to pray uh, as many of you remember some of those evenings became very rich very rich occasions for prayer with the family together screaming kids and all didn't interfere with a thing and I attribute this you know foremost to the character of our young parents secondarily perhaps to an increased focus on our prayers the salvation of souls uh, sanctification generosity perseverance love gentleness faithfulness things that I, I have heard elevated as priorities as you pray folks please use these cards Please use these prayer cards attached to your bulletin. Please write down the names of the people to whom you've witnessed during the previous week. Please make your request known to us, even if you can't show up. I understand there are times you can't get to prayer. Fill out a card and put it in one of the offering boxes by the door. If your mother is dying, put it on a card. If you need employment, write it out. Put it in a box. If you need the exact same prayer the following week, please fill out another card and put it in there again. We're not going to be able to know enough to, be, to just keep recycling the same cards. If it's that urgent, please repeat and put them in the offering boxes. Please write it down. I won't be able to include all of these in our, in our midweek newsletter. Uh, the requests have ticked up a lot over the last few weeks. Anyone who's led a prayer meeting uh, has recognized that, that the, the different requests, especially for salvation of souls on Wednesday night, uh, the names, just to write the names up on the whiteboard and say, we're praying for them. This, it's ticked up quite a bit in the last several weeks, few months. I, I can't include all of them in the midweek newsletter. Uh, but if you fill out a card, you will know in that way that it will get prayed for. Also, yeah, stop along with me creating excuses and become continually voted, devoted to corporate prayer, our prayer meeting. If you experience requests for prayer after Sunday, write on a card again, uh, Deliver them by hand to the person leading the devotional that evening when you arrive on Wednesday. Also, please, uh, please if you are able, attend a prayer home group that occurs at the, the first Wednesday of most every month. And bring your request to them as well. Um, that is where your smaller children are, are going to see where, where and what your, your church prays about. They're going to hear what's important at these prayer meetings as we pray together. I'm facing a, a, a slight conundrum uh, as how to integrate our teens into the Wednesday evening prayer meeting. I, I, have not, I have not yet been able to come up with a biblical rationale as to why we should exclude them from these three enduring principles of prayer. 
We pray together, we pray with one mind, and we pray continually with devotion. And once they head off to college, uh, where else do we expect them to learn these principles about prayer if it doesn't come from us and their parents in the home? One of my thoughts is, is to grab the prayer cards from the leader in the adult group and, and duplicate these prayers amongst our youth group. Uh, that may be an option. I think it would be a little bit disconnected, a little discombobulated, uh, redundant in a, in a manner. Another thought of mine has been that at a certain time, after, after we finished our youth topic of devotion and updates, uh, to come over and join the adults together as we are praying through the requests for that week, I'm not exactly sure. I'm going to seek some wisdom on how to best guide that. Uh, I'm still working through this. But folks, I, I truly and dearly expect, expect a strengthening of our shared devotion through these principles. If we will be faithful to come together and pray for the names of souls of those people we know, if we will devote ourselves, if we will ask, God will respond to our requests according to his will. I believe it will be the most positive and the most transformative thing that has happened to this church, that I've seen happen to this church. I truly do. I cannot, I cannot imagine otherwise. I pray with God's help. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, as we, we all stumble in so many ways, as we uh, struggle just, just to keep our lives together, all the busyness and all those doubts we have, uh, yet you're still working and you're working through us. Lord, I, I think we can all pray together with one mind that we can invite you into our lives together as a church and, and truly ask that you will glorify yourself in your son through the work that we do together here. And Father, I pray a renewed understanding, a knowledge of prayer, your desire for us to lift our requests and, and our, our true devotion to what you have expressed in your word. Lord, I pray that as we ask that you will be glorified and that you will respond to the prayers that are uttered through us. In Christ's name, amen.